Isaiah chapter 9. Actually, we're going to begin by reading Isaiah chapter 8, or at least starting at verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 8. And as you know, tonight we're taking a break from Nehemiah, but we're still in the Old Testament. So looking at the prophet of Isaiah, seven centuries, I said 400 years, that was my fault, seven centuries before the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ is prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. So I'm going to start reading once again at verse 19 of chapter 8, and we're going to read through to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. So it's a little bit lengthy, so uh, I'll go ahead and just read that, and you can remain seated and be reverent in your hearts for the reading of God's Word. Here's what uh, God's Word says to us tonight. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19 says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. In chapter 9, Starts this way, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this church family the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our lord endures forever let's pray to the lord and ask his blessing over our service lord we just come now into your presence to hear your words speak to our hearts through the scriptures and by the spirit father we come joyfully or to celebrate the announcement of the coming of a messiah who would be both god and man who would grant us a great deliverance so we pray father now for the light of the holy spirit to shine into our hearts so that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we might know the tidings of great comfort and joy that the gospel brings to us. Blessed be your name, God. Would you come and bless us, we pray, as we ask this for the glory of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can continue to be seated, right? Uh, what a remarkable thing I just thought about today uh, that, that probably millions of people throughout the world are going to have a special focus on this morning's sermon and even for those who still have Sunday nights, 
uh, on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Celebrate his birth as one of us. And this passage in Isaiah, as I've said, is hundreds of years before it even happened. He predicted that this would happen. It's really just an event of enormous significance and should, as we've talked about over our series and Experience Christmas, create in us an overwhelming joy. So the passage itself here I've broken down into three parts, and that's your title. It is a great light, a great joy, and a great king. That's going to kind of structure the way we walk through this passage, the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. And so the first we see is a great light. Well, the context actually back in chapter 8 is going to give us the need for the light. And so that's broken down into three parts. That's what we're going to look at first. I don't know if you picked up when I read it in chapter 8, but what was happening at that end of that chapter is they are being prophetically rebuked because of their apostasy. Uh, They have people who are now going to consult mediums and spiritists rather than consulting the law and the testimony, which is obviously, as we know, the word of our living God. And because of that now, there is a poverty of spirit. There's great anguish. There's great distress. The people then, as we talked about this morning, are under the curse of not enough food. And so they rage against their king. They rage against their God as if he's to blame. So the consequence of that is they look and behold the stress and darkness, this gloom of anguish at the end of chapter 8. It will be driven away into darkness. It's how we end it. And, but chapter 9 is, is a representation of one of those things we often see in prophets. You go from the threat of judgment then right into always the hope of restoration. Remember we talked about Zechariah. We saw that all the time. You'd have a judgment but always a hope of restoration. So at the beginning of chapter 9, now God promises to remove their gloom and anguish. He says in verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So with this kind of situation and the darkness of their apostasy from God, it's in the midst of this that a promise of a great change comes in. He is going to change The contempt that he has for them. And now he's going to make them glorious. That's what it says. So we have a a need for light. A people who are in gloom and anguish. uh, And we move from there to a promise of light. We saw the need for light. Now we're going to look at the promise of light. Verse 2 says this. It's the promise of light. The people who walk in darkness will see, there's the promise of great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will again, promise, shine on them. This is interesting. The the word for dark, the dark land actually, literally is the word death shadow. Uh, It's the same thing we read in Psalm 23, verse 4, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the same word. Dwelling in this death shadow in a dark land. This is where the people are. And yet, what's going to happen in that darkness and death of spiritual separation of God under his judgment? It, it's going to be changed now. 
They're going to see this great light that will affect this change. In fact, the parallel says that they have seen the great light, which is also shined on them. So they're going to see the great light, and then this great light is going to itself shine on them, changing them from his contempt now as he makes them glorious. You know, things about seeing light and light shining on us, we should recognize from our study of the book Peculiar Glory by John Piper on Wednesday night. In fact, I couldn't help but to think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 6 when going through this text. It says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Why? So that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That is a satanic influence on the mind of fallen, corrupt human beings apart from Christ so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. You can shine a light in a blind man's eye and he won't see it. Why? Because he's blind. That's what Paul's talking about here. Those apart from Christ are blind to seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So they can't see his light, but the way God changes that is he shines his light into their hearts so that they then can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the divine glory, the peculiar glory that radiates from the face of Jesus Christ. And here it is. It takes the work of God, the power of light, shining into hearts to rescue us. You often hear people say, oh, well, if, if only in the people of the world, if only they could hear a clear presentation of the gospel, they would receive Jesus. Well, listen, they do need that, right? They need someone to give them a clear presentation of the gospel but it takes more than that. It takes a sovereign God to shine the light of his grace into their hearts so that their blindness to Jesus and their blindness to his glorious grace would be done away with. So that now they can see to embrace Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior. So we have this need for light, this promise of light, but now we go on to discover the person of light. Because this passage we read now is quoted in the New Testament. It's actually in the Gospel of Matthew. It's after Jesus had received his messianic anointing in the baptism by water by John the Baptist. He's driven by the Spirit then out into the wilderness to face Satan and, and the temptation there. But after this, this is what we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death upon them a light dawned. So let's ask a, a Sunday school question. Who is the great light? It's Jesus, right? 
I've got some passages just from the Gospel of John, I know it's repetitive, that talk about this theme of light and the connection with life and light. You think about John chapter 1 verse 4, speaking about Jesus, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life that was in Jesus is itself the light of men, the light that would shine on men to bring them, 2 Corinthians 4, to the face of Jesus Christ, to know Christ. Then in John 3, 19, it says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The light has come into the world. The incarnation of Jesus is the light of God now wrapped in human flesh and human nature. But the corruption of the nature of men made them inclined not to love the light, but to love the darkness, love their own sinful self-serving natures. Then lastly, in John 8, 12, it says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The light is the life, and the life is the light. There is this identification between these two things, because it's Jesus who comes to rescue us from the darkness and from death. He does it by the light that is life. So we read next in this passage, it talks about these people who walk in darkness. They're going to see this great light, which we see now as a prediction of Jesus coming in his messianic ministry. But notice what this great light gives way to. Number two, it gives way to great joy. We find this in verses three to five. He says in verse three, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. We talked about this this morning as well, right? The blessing of God on his people is that they are going to be fruitful. They're going to be multiplied. There's going to be this great increase. And that's the first thing we see about this great joy. There's a great growth. You shall multiply the nations. Associated with that, you will increase your gladness. I love that, right? The idea of being glad and having that gladness increased. They will be glad in your presence. You see now that their hearts are changed. Now that the light is shown into their heart, there is this joy in the face of the blessing of God upon his multiplying people. They will rejoice in God's presence. This joy and gladness is is not a carnal material thing. It's a spiritual joy, a spiritual gladness that's being experienced here. Because of God's blessing now upon them, their joy, their gladness, it's increased. You know, that should be true of us, shouldn't it? As we gather together in the presence of God, we talk about this all the time. Because it's important and it's lacking in many churches, we ought to be joyful in the presence of God. Because these great, glorious, redemptive truths that Isaiah is predicting here are for us. When we come into the special presence of God, knowing through Jesus we have been reconciled with God our Father. We've been loved by God. We've been brought into his family, adopted into his family. We've been brought to worship God, to adore God. It should produce in us joy. As we sing, oh, oh God, we come to adore Jesus. We do that with great joy. So we ought to rejoice. Now, the interesting thing about verse 3 and the the last two lines there, uh, the interesting thing here is that Jesus' kingdom grows by both of these metaphors he uses. 
It grows by harvest, which he mentions. We have the spiritual harvest as God sends out his missionaries, his messengers into the world to tell the good news of the light that is life in Jesus Christ. So you've got a harvest of souls. It's actually how the spiritual nation of the true Israel, the new covenant Israel, grows throughout the world. But then we have victory and and spiritual warfare. That it is through the power of the gospel that the blindness of Satan, that he imposes blindness on unbelievers, is taken away. And now because of that, there is triumph in Jesus Christ. We even sing that, right? Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Triumphant how? Well, because the victory has been won for us in Jesus You know, as the hymn says, that there are great tidings of comfort and joy. Why? Because Jesus came to save us all from Satan's power when we were going astray. So the good news of the gospel should evoke joy into our hearts. See, as the great light now has enlightened us and brought us into his kingdom, it is through this great deliverance that this joy accompanies the multiplication of the nation is to be experienced by them. That's the next thing we see here is a great growth and then a great deliverance. There is a recognition that we have been delivered. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, it talks about uh, the exodus after, after God has brought them out of Egypt. In Leviticus 26, 13, it says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk correct. As you were like animals, being treated like animals under their, oath, or under their yoke, he says, I'm the one who liberated you. I'm the one who set you free. That same terminology, that same imagery is now here used in the book of Isaiah. It says in verse 4, these words, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. This is this deliverance now that we get to experience in the Lord Jesus Christ as he transfers us out of the domain of darkness and puts us into the kingdom of marvelous life and light and love through his son, Jesus Christ. Now Isaiah says that this is going to be as in the days of the battle of Midian. You know what that's a reference to, right? If you know your Bible, it's a reference to Judges chapter 7 when the judge Gideon fought against the Midianites. You remember what it was that God said to Gideon, he told him to gather up 22,000 soldiers to battle against the Midianites who were oppressing the people of God. And this is what God says to Gideon in verse 2 of Judges chapter 7. The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. Why? Because Israel would become boastful saying, my own power has delivered me. And friends, that's the tendency we have, this self-exaltation that we take credit. And God says, I'm not going to let you do that this time because you've got enough soldiers. You're going to think you did it through your own military prowess. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to reduce it. So the number goes from 22,000 to 10,000. And God says, "Mm, still too many. He gives them another test until it's whittled down to 300. 300 Israelites against an entire army of Midianites. And you know the story. God supernaturally worked in such a way that he, as they they had their jars with the torches in them, and then they, they blew the trumpets, the power of God was at work, and it scattered the Midianites. They started fighting each other, so there was a great victory. But this is obviously something that they had not affected. This was the hand of the work of God. 
This is what God wanted. I wanted it, he says, to be clear to you that your own deliverance did not come from your own power, but it came from my power at work for you. And church, the same thing is true for us. There is not one shred of credit that we can take for our own salvation. You do not have it within your own power because the God of this world blinds your mind so that you do not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is entirely of grace as he gives us freely new hearts and draws us so that we see the light of the glory of Christ in the face of of Jesus Christ. And then we're rescued and delivered. Because church family, whether you realize it or not, you and I were in bondage. We, we are in bondage. We are slaves. Jesus says this actually in John chapter 8 verses 34 and 36. He says, uh, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. But he says in verse 36, so if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus has come to set us free from Satan's power when we had gone astray? Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. It's the good news of the gospel. Have you embraced that good news? Have you embraced the light, the good news of Jesus Christ? The deliverance that he came to effect for us. Paul's reflecting on this in the book of Galatians. This is what he writes to the church in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says that because it's possible for us to lapse back into this kind of legalism and this kind of self-righteousness to somehow think that we are the ones who make ourselves acceptable to God. Paul said, don't let this happen to you. It's not by the work of flesh that anyone is made acceptable to God. It's only by the grace of the righteousness of God that is given to us by putting our trust in Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus comes to liberate us from that yoke of slavery. But, but I said that we're all still enslaved because the liberation is really just to put us under a yoke. Look what it says in, in Matthew chapter 11, 29 through 30. That's why Jesus can say this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So I just think about this question. Have you taken the yoke of Christ upon yourself? It's the only way you will ever, by the way, have rest for your soul. See, one of the problems that sin does is that it it thinks, it causes us to think that we will find rest somewhere other than Jesus. That's what sin does. Jesus is the only place you will find that true rest for your soul. In our fallenness, we look everywhere else, but the only source of true rest, true joy, true fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a a great growth, there's a great deliverance, and then number three in verse, number two, number three in number two is a great peace that is part of this joy. There's a great, great peace that we have. Look at that from verse 5. Look what it says. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. In other words, what, what does that mean? How, that doesn't sound peaceful, right? How in the world is that peaceful? Well, in other words, all the implements of warfare will be now turned to domestic use to provide light and heat. 
Because they won't be necessary anymore. Here is a promise of universal peace. No more weapons because there will be no more war. Now we know in an ultimate sense that this is coming in the final coming in the new heavens and the new earth. But the reality of the gospel is that final not yet is already at work in our lives and in our hearts among us. Now, of course, there's still war in our world, but as the gospel really works in people's heart, it tends to restrain the war because it brings the peace of God into the heart of God's people so that they have a desire to be peacemakers. Think about this. If we are no longer under his wrath and under his just judgment, but now we have peace, we've been reconciled, therefore there should be peace. There is shalom, there is fullness and wholeness of that restoration. It's not just vertical, it's also horizontal. It's the same work of Christ that makes the Jew and the Gentile together into one new man because he, Jesus, is our peace. Not that just he makes peace, but he is our peace. So so when we're filled with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, then we're going to be a people who continually strive after peace. That desire for peace, that willingness to pursue peace, it comes from the grace of God in our hearts. It's what the gospel does to us. The inclination then is to begin to think about in our lives where we can curb hostilities. The questions we ask is his grace at work in our hearts and in our homes. Are, are we working at being reconciled toward one another in our homes when we get at odds? It's a good thing to think about before the holidays, right? And your family comes over. It's true for parents and children. You see, it, it's the grace of God in our hearts that gives us the forbearance, that gives us the forgiveness that makes us pursue peace. Obviously, on your end, all you can do is pursue it. It takes a response from the other party to be successful in that pursuit, but it's what the gospel does for us. So we see a great light, we see a great joy, and then one other reason for the great joy is in our third point, and that is we see our great king. Our great king. In verse 6, the first thing we examine when we look at this great king is we look, uh, we find out about the nature of this person. It says, in a verse you should be familiar with, I know Brother Danny knows it, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now the Hebrew actually can be a child will be born for us and a son will be born for us. They're, they're both true, by the way. He is born to us as another human being, as a fellow human being, and he is born for us in our salvation. This child's described as a ruler. It says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This one who is a human, a child, a son, is now the ruler of the world because he's not merely human. He's fully human, but he's not merely human. That's what we see in the next thing. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, that word wonderful is from the Hebrew word that talks about the wonders of God, the mighty acts of God, his powerful, wonderful deeds. So he is full of this wonder of divine power as the counselor, as the one who gives the advice we need to help us in sound Christ-honoring living. But, But then he's also called mighty God. 
El Gabor. He's like the mighty men of David. This is the mighty God, the God of power. He's called the Father Eternal, the Eternal Father. In the Hebrew, it's just one word, and it's actually structured Father Eternal. The Prince of Peace. See, all these names that we mention, we're familiar with, all these things all talk about authority and rule. Because he is the ruler. But he's not just a man who's a ruler, he's God. He's the mighty God, the eternal father. That's why the prophecy two chapters before this in Isaiah seven fourteen says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, which we know the Hebrew for that one. It means God with us. So this is a child, but this child is God with us. It's Emmanuel, Jesus, incarnate deity. He has come to be among us, to be our ruler, to be the ruler of this world. So we know from the Gospels that he's raised to the right hand of the Father in his glorified resurrection and exaltation and the ascension. He is now actively ruling over all the nations. This is the next part in verse 7. It says... There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's the second thing we see here is this is actually a covenant fulfillment of a covenant promise that's made to David. This king is going to be one who fulfills a covenant promise. We talked about covenant promises this morning. Again, David is, is one of those watershed covenants that shape redemptive history. Because David, remember, he wanted to build a house for God. And what did God say? God said, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you. That's the dynasty. He says, one of your seed is going to sit on a throne of a kingdom that's going to last forever. His throne will endure forever and ever and ever. Now, he did have a son, Solomon, who did build an earthly temple, but even that was a greater picture of David's greater son who's going to build an eternal temple. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. So he's sitting on the throne of David because Jesus is now the one in his coming who has restored and continued and expands the reign of David. In fact, in the Old Testament predictions, the Messiah is sometimes called David. This is the Davidic king, even Jesus. This is why the angel says to Mary as he explains what's going on here, that the holy seed in her womb will be great and he will be called the son of David and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign in the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Then we find out it's going to be a kingdom of justice and righteousness. It says from then on and forevermore. Then on. No doubt talks about from when he comes into the world forever and ever, then he is going to be the king of righteousness and justice as well as grace and love. This prophecy, this text, it wraps up with the assurance. How in the world can all of these things be? Look at the assurance of this covenant. The answer is the zeal of Yahweh. The self-existent God, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, the one who is Lord over all the heavens and earth, he is the one who will assure that it will happen. 
That's why we're here today, right? Commemorating the incarnation of Jesus Christ, worshiping, celebrating, stirring ourselves up to a great holy joy because the great light has come and stepped into the world and stepped into our heart and he has now brought us to know him, to love him, to worship him, to adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Light of light, God of God, incarnate for our salvation. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Is your heart filled with with this great joy? Not because of the present you're gonna get on Wednesday, but because the greatest, most indescribable present that's already been given for us, the child, the son given for who is willing to die in our place so that we might have this blessing, we might have the joy of being delivered from darkness and death into light and life. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. What a tremendous gift we've been given in Christ. So I love this because we've been singing all these Christmas carols all all month long, right? And I love it. It's one of my favorite things about Christmas here. But this is why. These aren't just things we go caroling and shout at houses for some reason. These are things that are rich with doctrinal truth because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. He's a great light. He brings a great joy, and he is, he is our great king. Oh, come, let us adore him. Would you stand with me as we close together? Oh, God, how majestic is your name. How worthy are you for all of our praise, all of our adoration. You're worthy of our gratitude for giving us the greatest gift of all, The gift of your son Jesus who gives us the gift of eternal life and you're worthy for not giving us the gift we deserved and showing us mercy and sparing us of your wrath. We know from your word that he who has the son has the life and he who does not have the son of God has not the life but the wrath of God abides on him. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took the wrath for us so that we could be your sons and your daughters We pray that you would keep the eyes of our hearts open so that regardless of the circumstances of life, we see how much we're loved and we see the greatness of the gift of eternal life given to us through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to wrap yourself in humanity, be the object of such abuse and such torment on our behalf because of your great love for us. We pray that as we meditate on that great love for us, that it would evoke and grow in us an increasing love for you and a love for others, especially a love for the lost. So hear us, Lord. Give us the help of the Holy Spirit now as with great joy we give you our thanks and give you our praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.